0: Well, hello there, my friend, and welcome to today's episode of Seven Figure Millennials, where I get to introduce you to somebody that has changed your life and you may not even know it. His name is Marty Cooper, and he is the man who invented the cell phone. That is right. If you are listening to this on a device, he was the guy that created the first ever cell phone in 1973, and normally I don't even tell that about a guest in the very beginning before I even give the normal introduction, but I am just so excited to introduce you to somebody that has literally changed the world. Anyways, if this is the first time you've ever listened to the show, you and I are on a mission to do things a bit differently. We are choosing, we are committing to prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships while building a business that creates a meaningful impact in the lives of the people that we love and generating the life for us to design a beautiful life on our terms. And if you are here as a first time listener or a seasoned listener, I appreciate you so much for being here and for taking time out of your day to expand and grow every single week. I'm interviewing incredible humans, making a massive impact in the world to support you in doing the same. And I think saying massive is literally an understatement because as I found out today, There are more cell phones that exist on this planet than there are humans, and this guy is responsible for actually making it happen. So as I said before, today's legendary leader of impact is Marty Cooper, and I'll read his bio in just a second, but before I dive into that, I want to tell you three specific things I want you to look out for in today's episode. Number one, you're going to learn the historical significance of the first ever phone call. And I don't want to give it all away, but I I do want to read a chunk from Marty's book as a little bit of a teaser. So here it is. To preserve the viability of Motorola and to save the future of communications from the chokehold of a monopoly, we needed to actually show, not just tell, the FCC that at and claim that only it, as a monopoly, could deliver cellular service was baloney. What if Motorola could demonstrate a vision of the future of real mobile telephone technology? I knew such a demonstration could be done. I knew such a demonstration had to be done. We had to do something spectacular. Then it hit me. We needed to make a phone call. So there you go. Lots of heroic stuff going on in today's episode, saving the future of communications from the grips of a monopoly. So look out for that story. Number two, you're going to learn about the story of the first ever phone call made on April 3rd, 1973. What was said? What was the context behind it? What made it happen? Um, So you're going to learn that. And then also you're going to learn from Marty as somebody that has created technology that transformed the world, you're going to hear his vision for the future as somebody who's literally transformed the world. So here is Marty's bio. Actually, this isn't from his bio. I'm just going to say it. Marty is... At the time that this comes out, he's going to be 94 years old, and it was such an honor to spend some time with him as somebody that has literally transformed planet Earth. So uh, here's his bio. Martin Cooper, while at Motorola, conceived of the portable cellular phone and led the team that created the first one in 1973. He has contributed to wireless communications technology for over 60 years as an inventor, entrepreneur, and executive. He's contributed immensely to many important advancements in wireless communications, from the first car phones and radio pagers to the latest cellular generations. During his 29-year tenure with Motorola, Cooper was a division manager and served as corporate director of R&D. Subsequently, he started several businesses, which he led to dominate the U.S. cellular billing industry in the 1980s. He is a member of the U.S. National Academy of Engineering, a Marconi Prize recipient, a Prince of Asturias Laureate, and has received many other awards, including induction into the Wireless and Consumer Electronics Halls of Fame, and Time Magazine in 2007 named him one of the top 100 inventors in history. This is a monumental episode. Not only do you get to learn from somebody who's created an impact that has impacted the entire globe, but you will also discover that Marty is just a very sweet guy and is just very present and very caring and very passionate about uh, making the biggest contribution to the world that he's capable of making and also being a present and loving person for his wife and his great-great-grandchildren as he shares in the episode. So I'm super excited for you to listen to this interview with the five- Father of the cell phone, Marty Cooper. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, How can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Figure Millennials Podcast. Mr. Marty Cooper, welcome to the show. Beyond excited to have you here, my friend. This is going to be so much fun.
1: Wonderful to be here, Brandon.
0: And I've been so looking forward to this. I saw it in my calendar several weeks from now, and I read your book. Cutting the cord, the cell phone has transformed humanity. And as as you and I were just chatting beforehand, this story belongs in a movie. And I was flying through the story in the book and hoping that this interview will be able to do it justice. So we have so much to dive into. So I figured to save some time, I'm just going to start by, for our friends listening, just to set the scene, and then we'll kind of rewind and figure out how we got here. So the date is April 3rd, 1973. We're in New York City. And for the past three months, you've been pushing your team like crazy to do the impossible, to create the world's first mobile cell phone. And in your hands, you're holding the Dynatech, which is the grandmother of all the cell phones that we've had. And you got a, a local radio station reporter with you, and you're about to make the world's first ever phone call. So what I could do is I could have you tell the story right now, but I want to intentionally kind of leave us on a cliffhanger because I I want people to hear the story of you making that first phone call, but I want them to really sink into all the stuff that had to happen to actually make that possible. So (laughs) I know I'm kind of rambling a little bit, but I want to start a little bit earlier, two years prior. This is from your book um, in in chapter eight, I believe you said, the people who hold the purse strings in any organization are inherently conservative, and we're fortunate that they are. Someone must sort out the unknown. Requests to fund the necessary cost of product development and introduction. In response, engineers discovered that if we're ever going to have a chance of bringing a product to market, we have to be able to sell our project internally. We need to be showmen. So, before we continue with the New York City street and where we pause there, I know that part of the reason why you were doing that whole thing on TV was for, because of showmanship and you wanted to announce the cell phone in a, in a big way. And so, I thought we'd start with a story from you that demonstrates where you learned the power of showmanship. So, I would love for you to tell talk about uh when you unveiled the page boy two pager in 1971 i understand that your pr team had some ideas for how you should do it you didn't agree with but they ended up overruling you so we'd love for you to tell the story of your announcement speech for the page boy two pager
1: <laughs> yeah well it's, boy I, i'm sure so pleased that you read my book because i forgot about that ins- incident myself until you read <laughs> mine. but uh uh, I don't know if you saw the uh, the uh, Arthur Clarke uh, uh, science fiction movies, uh, where, but uh, there was one of them that started out uh, with uh, uh, Neanderthals uh, walking around with their uh, breaking up stones and, and mm-hmm. with their clubs. And uh, one of the uh, ne- Neanderthals, uh, picks up a uh, a piece of wood and throws it up in the air and as it's spinning up in the air in the movie it turns into a spaceship mm-hmm. and you you move like uh, hundreds of uh, thousands of years uh, ahead in one instant and so uh, what we did to introduce the page boy two pager which is the first radio pager uh, your uh, audience probably is too young to even know what a radio pager is <laughs> But for many years, that was the way we stayed connected. It, it was a huge business. There were uh, like 60 million people in the United States having pagers and there were many businesses that were based upon uh, keeping people in contact. Of course, now we use cell phones and the pager has almost uh, disappeared. So uh, uh, we were introducing a, a brand new model that was tiny. And uh, we ended up uh, converting this the beginning of this movie into an ape man throwing this up in the air and it turns into the pageboy two pager ta da ta
0: da <laughs> That's uh, a, I can only I can imagine like everybody sitting in an auditorium kind of like a Steve Jobs unveiling and there's like the person throwing a bone in the air and it comes back as a as a magical pager. And I, as a, as I understand your PR team rented a magician's glass cage to have you appear is that correct? So you had a bit of a flair in how you appeared too. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, well they were trying to stimulate our sales forces where this uh, happened. To, and uh, they respond to things like that. And sure enough, and they, had, uh, they had me popping out of this uh, uh, glass cage. I have no idea uh, what <laughs> it was. Whatever it was very corny, uh, Brandon, but uh, our salesmen are trained and they cheered like mad and it was a great event.
0: I love that. Well, I like you say in the book, like some showmanship is always required to get people inspired. So I love that you got to be a magician and you got kind of like the flair for showmanship. And so the reason why I wanted to start there is because that was a perfect example of showmanship. And when you made that phone call, that was another example of you wanting to bring the cell phone to the world in a really unique way. But like I said, in the beginning, I want people to really understand why this was so important that you were doing this. So would you mind maybe sharing a little bit about like why you were doing this and what you were going up against with AT&T, threatening to be the a, a monopoly, essentially, and what this had to do with making sure that that didn't happen?
1: Well, these were really primitive times, Brandon. Uh, AT&T was the biggest company in the world by every measure. Uh, and uh, they owned the telephone business. You wanted to have a telephone, you had to rent it from them. And <laughs> they were all black, except they came up with a uh, one uh, new phone that was tiny. And uh, with all the money they spent on it, this phone was too light to sit on a table. They had a huge problem with these things falling off the table. But so uh, even if you're the biggest company in the world, it doesn't mean you make the right decisions all the time. Right. And it turns out that uh, the uh, we had already discovered the importance of personal connection in business. We had created handheld phones and police departments. And and uh, businesses that have people uh, on the move could not run their businesses without our products, without Motorola mm-hmm. handheld devices. We had a thing called the Handy Talk with uh, a two-way radio. So we knew that people wanted to be connected personally. And along comes AT&T and says, uh, "By the way, that's the old AT&T. We'll call it the mm-hmm. Bell System." Uh, and they say. Uh, We've invented, invented a new thing, we are going to keep you connected all the time, it's called cellular, don't worry about what cellular means, but we're going to keep, maintain you connected all the time, and their version of connection was car telephones. <laughs> you know, here for 100 years, we had been uh, constrained by that wire going into the wall, and now they were going to constrain us in our cars. you know, people don't spend that much time in their cars. And, and we knew the time was ready to have a personal phone, that the telephone call should not be a call to a place. It should be a call to a person. I know mm-hmm. when you hear me say that, Brandon, you're too young to appreciate the fact that in the old days, when you made a phone call, you weren't calling a, a location. You didn't know who was gonna answer. And now you don't even think about that. You make a mm-hmm. phone call you expect. I call you, I expect Brandon to answer. So. Uh, Motorola took on the bell system. And here is where this issue of salesmanship comes in. Somewhere or other, we uh, engineers uh, had to prove to the uh, management that it was worth investing this money and taking a big chance, taking on the biggest company in the world. Uh, And so uh, uh, this issue of displaying confidence of proving to people that you know what you're talking about, uh, turns mm-hmm. out it's an essential part, believe it or not, of engineering. Mm-hmm. You gonna do a job, you gotta sell yourself and sell your product, and that's the story of the world, because who am I talking to, Brandon? You're the best salesman I've run into lately. I mean, <laughs> you know you know about uh, all of these things. So, uh, so we took the Bell System on But keep in mind that uh, this is a government decision, FCC, Federal Communications Commission, and and they are run by the Congress. So those are the people that we have to influence. Well, it turns out the Bell System has 200 lobbyists calling on the FCC alone. They call on every commissioner and every uh, uh, executive. uh, So they are connected. We have three people in Washington covering the FCC and the Congress, so we're at a somewhat disadvantage. And we get the word that the FCC is about to make the decision on who was going to run this new cellular business. And and of course, their view was car telephones. Their view was they're going to be a monopoly. Their, their view was that they could do anything they want, including our business. <laughs> two-way radio, we didn't like that very much. So uh, the of scheduled a big demonstration trying to prove to the world how important the two-way radio business is. I have to tell you, Brandon, there's nothing more boring than explaining to people what the two-way radio business is. <laughs> now, there are corporations that can't exist without two-way radios. But, uh, you know, uh, my mother always... Uh, when she asked me what i did for a living and i told her with two a radios was dis- really distressed she would much rather i was a lawyer or or a uh, whatever anything but what Our two radios so uh, uh, we uh I, I approached the management and told him you know uh, this demonstration is going to be boring if you really want to get people's attention let's show what the future is going to be Let's show them what a real telephone should be. And they said, well, are you sure you can do this? Of course I'm sure. And uh, they said, well, charge ahead, but you've got a fixed date. We've already scheduled this demonstration of 2 radios in Washington for uh, the beginning of uh, April. Uh, and that date is solid. We can, are not going to change. Okay, I approached, first of all, our uh, designer, I told him, we were going to make a cell phone. He says, what's a cell phone? <laughs> well, so, uh, then I approached the engineers and had to work out the insides of what the designer was doing. And uh, the engineer's first reaction was, uh, sorry, Marty, uh, we know you have a great vision, but we're not going to do that in three months. I said, well, we are going to make our best effort, and I think you can do it. Yeah, and so, and so the designers came up with five different models of of what a cell phone should look like. You've seen those because you look, you have read my book. Uh, and and uh, each one, they, they, remember now, this is, we're talking about uh, 1973, that's 50 years ago, 49 years ago. Next year is 50 year 50th anniversary. Uh, there, there were no cordless phones. There were no computers. There were, there was no internet. Uh, and uh, here we were taking a, trying to uh, put a cell phone into a box this big. Uh, what I'm showing is the size of a, an existing a cell phone. Uh, when it turns out that some of the parts in our car telephones were bigger than the whole uh, handheld phone. Yeah. So, so. Uh, uh, the management supported us. I brought in resources from all over the Motorola Corporation because we did it. everything was new, new antenna, new frequency band, and, and a way of uh, talking and listening at the same time, which as you know, two-way radios don't do. You are all pressed to talk. So uh, the, the team worked day and night for three months uh, and they did it by the end of March. We, in the laboratory, we had working units.
0: That's so incredible. So I want to unpack a few components of that story just because there's so much gold there. I I just want to, I think another thing that, I didn't realize the gravity of this situation was that you were developing this for Motorola and Motorola was a supplier to AT&T. So the fact that you decided to take a stand and fight against them was like, you guys are putting all your chips in. Um, and it you know, must've been pretty intimidating to, to say that you were go ahead and do this. And as you kind of breezed by, like you had so little time to actually make this happen. And from what I kind of understood from your role as being the curious guy that you were, you were kind of just roaming around Motorola over the past few years and you knew all the technology existed to potentially make it, but nothing had ever. There was no one human that had ever said, "Okay, we're gonna put this all into one small device." And you were kind of one of the few people that had the visibility and knowing what was being produced that this was actually physically possible. So I I think that is so cool that you know you were being humble and you kind of breezed past it. But I just wanted people to understand how cool it was that you were able to do all this. I would love for you to maybe share. Maybe if you can, so you, I know you have a model of the, of the phone with you. So um, if you're listening, you might not be able to see it or we can post a, a picture of Marty holding it, but uh, I had the picture up and he's, he's holding the, is this the Dynatech right now? This is the original model right here.
1: Yeah, this is it. That's uh, the one uh, this, you
0: made the call on.
1: Yeah. As, as you can see, well, this is a, an exact replica. Okay. You had to build one that uh, leave, uh we have a real phone in the uh, Smithsonian. Mm. So you can see this thing is an inch and a half wide. It's about three inches deep and it's about uh, uh, 10 inches tall. The, the units that the designers came up with look just like modern phones. They we could hold a grand and the engineers looked at those little things and said, there's no way we could uh, squeeze all of our stuff. Remember, we had to build this thing with individual parts Today, your uh, iPhone or your Android phone has one chip in it that has a couple of billion parts on it. So this phone uh, comprises maybe 150 parts, but they were all individual parts. had to be soldered together uh, uh, and uh, all hand-built. So it was a miracle that we ever got this thing uh, working.
0: But but. as I understand, the original designer, Ken Larson, they was called the shoe phone and it was supposed to be smaller, but it slowly got nicknamed the brick because you had to fit more and more into it. So it was like, that's how it worked, right? Is like you basically, you had the designers working separately from the tech people and then they had to kind of like collaborate back and forth day and night, 24 hours a day to make sure the phone just kept growing and growing to make it possible with all these different points.
1: Well, you you got the word exactly right. Collaboration, <laughs> I think, is is uh, going to save uh, so, uh, society.
0: That's and, beautiful. You
1: know, two, two people could always do a lot more than one. And that's uh, one thing the cell phone does is make, uh, combined with the internet, uh, makes collaboration a, a piece of cake. That's what you and I are doing now. It's,
0: Absolutely. Uh,
1: that's and,
0: and you just planted a seed because I do want to get your perspective on the future and where we're heading and how we can change collaboration. But I, I want to uh, dig a little bit deeper into some other small components because I also was really surprised to find out that like the what you were building with the technology, you knew it was possible, but lots of the stuff that you were creating in only three months wasn't even proven that it could possibly be done so maybe would you mind sharing a little bit about like the quote-unquote impossibility of this that that you were basically you had to have several breakthroughs and so many things had to go right just to make this one phone call so would you mind maybe sharing some of the different things that had to be created in order to make the cell phone
1: sure well the first thing was the frequency band we were in Uh, the uh The highest frequency we'd ever used for two way radio was 450 megahertz, uh, which is uh, compared to today's uh, telephone bands, it's right in the, or television. It's right in the middle of the television bands today, Uh, but it was a real challenge to do 450 megahertz. uh, And the uh, FCC had designated a thousand megahertz. For, uh, for the frequency bands. Nobody had ever done that with a tour radio before. So that was the first challenge. The second one, these phones had to talk and listen at the same time. We'd never done that. Everything we did was, you've seen the, uh, the uh, Army movies. You, know, you press a button and talk, you let the button go and the other person talks. The device that makes a phone call work in both directions up until that point was as big as your fist. And, <laughs> We had no way we were going to fit that into this. Uh, 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 Telephone as big as it it was. The the antenna, because it was a new frequency band, was new. And the most difficult thing to do was two-way radios usually had one or two channels. Maybe some of them had five or six. For a cell phone, you have to be able to get, at that time, uh, uh, hundreds of radio channels. Today's cell phones have thousands of radio tails, but at that time, we'd never gotten above one or two. We'd have a separate quartz crystal for every channel. Couldn't do that. We needed a, a large-scale integrated circuits. Nobody would ever thought of the, uh, doing anything like that, but we managed to talk our people in our semiconductor division to take stuff out of the laboratory and build us a, a large-scale integrated circuit that with some thousands of parts on it, not does it compare to today's billions, but enough so that we could put uh, almost 500 channels into this one uh, handheld portable telephone. And so. so-
0: I, I can I can only imagine I can just picture myself in the Motorola building. People are saying, Marty, there's no way in hell we're going to be able to do this. But you had you had the vision, you had the leadership, you had the inspiration to push them to make it happen. So let's let's kind of play for the the movie in our mind. So like we're, we're you at Motorola, you're working crazy and crazier, and then eventually it's the the next day is April 3rd, 1973, when you're supposed to actually make this phone call and make it happen. As I understand the night before you guys are still scrambling to assemble the phone. Would you mind sharing a little bit about like the night before <laughs> as I as I hear that you guys were working in a, in a pretty cool spot to make it happen?
1: Well, it, it turns out we needed a lot of space at the Hilton Hotel, which is where we were all staying. And so we rented uh, the uh, Elizabeth Taylor Richard Burton suite at the top of the Hilton, which was magnificent. This is a two story hotel room with a grand plan a grand piano in it, uh, and here in the corner of the suite uh, where Richard Burton and, and uh, Elizabeth Taylor uh, once slept. Here were these engineers with solder yards uh, repairing the phone because it, it was hand built. All these parts were soldered together, hundreds of parts, uh, and all by hand, and the darn things kept failing. Mm-hmm. so. Uh, uh, they admit that they were still working and meanwhile we had already arranged for a, a television interview the following morning uh, i was wakened up the following morning by a phone call it turns out that the tv station had a higher priority story nobody cared about the cell phone so uh the, our pr people arranged for a radio station to interview me and i told them look but the radio station is going to do this. Let's do it out of the street. That's really where you get the real feeling of the freedom that comes from having a phone that you can move around with a wire on it. And so there we were out on uh, uh, 56th Street uh, or the Avenue of the Americas, actually, uh, and 56th Street, right next to the Hilton. Uh, and uh, this radio reporter is asking me questions, just as you are, uh, Brandon. Uh, and the time came for me to make a phone call, the very first public call ever. Uh, and I just spontaneously thought, who can I call? I'm gonna call the guy in the bell system who was my equivalent. He's ready-
0: <laughs> Your nemesis, rub it in his face a little bit. <laughs>
1: he's, he's, he's trying to promote uh, car telephones right. and I'm promoting personal handheld phones. And so I reach into my pocket for my printed phone book to give you an idea about the primitive times we were in. Uh, and I call uh, Joel Engel, Dr. Joel Engel, who uh, was running this project for the uh, Bell System. And amazingly, he answers the phone, Brandon, not <laughs> his secretary, and he was not traveling. Uh, if he was traveling, of course, we couldn't have reached him because he, we did not have a cell phone. but uh, and I said, uh, Joel, this is Marty Cooper. He says, hi, Marty. Uh, I said, I'm calling you uh, on a cell phone. He says, really? I said, yes, this is a real cell phone. This is a personal, portable, handheld cell phone. You can see I was not averse to to, uh, rubbing it in. (laughs) Joel, uh, in my recollection, was courteous to me uh, There was a a pause in our conversation. I suspect he was grinning his teeth. But uh, to this day, uh, Joel, he doesn't dispute that we uh, had that conversation, but he doesn't remember it. Uh, And to tell you the truth, Brandon, I don't blame him. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I think I looked it up. He takes credit for receiving the first phone call though, right? Is that is that correct? So he, he can't not dispute it if he's using the bragging rights to say that he received the first phone call.
1: <laughs> he's not very happy about that, but, uh, uh, but uh, we were, uh, people asked me what I was thinking about when I was uh, making that first phone call. What a historic moment that was. I said, I'm sorry, but the only thing I was is, I hope this damn thing works. Well, okay. I
0: mean, so that, that was what I was going to ask. So up until this point, you had never tested it. So like you had all those months of working, you were working on it the night before you had never even attempted. So this was like happening live and you didn't know if the call was actually going to go through. Is that correct?
1: That's well, keep in mind that we were doing everything we had done up till that point was in a laboratory. Okay. The phone talking to a, a station but here we were actually going over the air to a cell site that was on a building right next to the Hilton we weren't taking any chances uh, so the the, the the base station it was on the roof of the building next to the uh, Hilton uh, and so the uh, cell phone only had to talk uh, maybe a block or two and so we weren't taking any chances there but all those connections and this phone that we were depending on were very unreliable. So, mm. but that we had, we had a guy standing by with a second phone just in case the first one broke. Yeah, did, it, it worked and it was a charm. And the only bad thing that happened is remember we we're walking down uh, the Avenue of the Americas uh, and uh, I stepped into the street to uh, go across the street and this guy, reporter grabs me, and save me from getting reamed by a cab, So that would have been a, a very uh, interesting historic the, event. For the, yeah. You I could have been
0: the first ever death created by a self <laughs> as the same guy that invented it. But I'm glad that didn't happen. That's that's incredible. How how did that feel? Like did you feel like you were changing the world at that moment? Did it really sink in or did it really take time to appreciate it? Like what was running through your head when you made that accomplishment and you, you hit the end on that first ever phone call?
1: Well, I told you at that moment, I didn't think about the historic significance, but we did believe in this thing. We knew it was going to be a big thing. Nobody else believed us, but we knew it was going to be a big thing. And the story that we told is someday, when you were born you'd be assigned a phone number and if you didn't answer the phone you had died. so we we just knew that everybody someday was going to have a cell phone and guess what uh, there are more cell phones in the world today than there are people <laughs> there are actually uh, like eight billion people we just crossed that threshold uh, in the last couple of months uh, there are eight billion people in the world and there are about six billion of those people have cell phones and many of them have two cell phones yeah there so there are more cell phones than there are uh, people today and people just accept the fact that you can uh, talk to carry a cell phone any place in the world and call almost everybody in the world on that cell phone
0: so when you're outside and you're walking the streets and you see all these people with their heads down, staring at phones, does it ever does it ever feel weird or sink in or realize that you were like the catalyst for that? Like, does that is that strange for you knowing that you birthed all this, <laughs> that or at least created the movement for for this to happen?
1: Well, uh, uh, as you already know since you read my book, I'm fixated on all the good things the cell phone uh, has done. Uh, in places like healthcare, in letting people collaborate and, and uh, uh, reduce poverty in countries all over the world. Uh, and uh, uh, I think the cell phone is going to revolutionize education. But I am horrified when I watch people crossing the street, looking at their <laughs> telephone and ignoring all the traffic around them. You know, I, you know these people are absolute uh, idiots. But uh, that that is a very common thing, as you well know. Every every new technology carries with it some risks and Mm -hmm. there are some risks with the cell phone, but the only story I have is that the benefits of the cell phone far exceed the risks. And I hope you agree with that, Brandon.
0: I, I do. Well, there you go, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. You have just heard the tale of the first ever phone call and the three months leading up to it. So I was enthralled by that. I, I'm I really hope that movie does come out, Marty. I know you had said that you you have a producer that's that's potentially working on that, but I will be one of the first in line to to watch that when it comes out. And I'm curious to see who will end up playing you. <laughs> but but let's let's dive into a little bit more of some of the wisdom that you share inside of your book, cutting the Accord, one of the things that that was a brilliant little, it was actually a really small section that I saw was Marty's Maxims. And I thought this would be a great place to dive into some of the, the wisdom and insight that you've learned over your years of dreaming about wireless in the future and all that kind of stuff. And, and the first one that you allude to a lot in the book is the fact that human are fundamentally mobile. And I love to think a lot about First principles, like what are the things that we know to be true and build up from there? And this seems to be kind of like one of your first principles. So we'd love for you to maybe share a little bit about why that has become a maxim of yours and how it's going to be important in the future as well.
1: Well, uh, you know that uh, that mobility is important, Brandon, because people don't want to be constrained. They don't want to be leashed to their desks uh, with a wire. It's like being in prison. You, you just go out of the uh, uh, I don't know, uh, you didn't tell me where you are, where you're located. Wisconsin. <laughs> oh, you're, well, you have you have super highways in Wisconsin as we, <laughs> as we do here. But I go out on the uh, I-5 and 24 hours a day there are cars, hundreds, thousands of cars moving in both directions on that highway. Uh, isn't that proof that mobility is important? People would, are on the move, they don't want to be constrained uh, any way, so uh, and, and here, uh, the bell system first is telling people you've got to be wired to the wall and, and then uh, uh, they're going to re- uh, set you loose and you can get in your car. Uh, uh, neither of those is acceptable to the modern person. You mm-hmm. need to be connected wherever you are. That's especially true, by the way, uh, in education. You know, we have our children. Uh, if they have a device with them that can the, the uh, internet, they have the world's knowledge available to them. And why restrict them to having that only in the schoolroom, only in, in Wi-Fi range? They should be able to look things up wherever they are, just like we do. You do that all the time, don't you, Brad? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You don't, we, you don't have long arguments about whether a, something is factory true. You look it up. <laughs> so uh, that's one of, one of my passions is, is uh, I think that, that education in the future will require every student not only to have a device, but to be within coverage of a cell site. Uh, we don't do that now. Oh, by the way, it also has to be affordable to, to that student. And right now, uh, my estimate is that uh, half of our students do not have full-time access. the internet either because there's no coverage or because they can't afford it
0: yeah well so let's let's expand on that comment that what you're talking about here with education because another one of your maxims is the best way to think outside of the box is to not create the box in the first place and i love this i loved it (laughs) but also you talk about this specifically in the context of collaboration, how collaboration needs to change in the future. And this is kind of what we alluded to earlier. And you wrote in the book, many years from now, we will look back at the early 21st century as a primitive time in terms of collaborative tools. So what you were just sharing there is basically allowing everybody to have access. But once we do all have access, um, learning how to collaborate effectively is so important. So I know it's kind of a a messy setup. I would love for you to maybe share some of your insights on either how we can Leverage technology to collaborate more effectively, or also talk about your maxim of uh, thinking outside of the box and not creating the box in the first place.
1: Well, I'd like to give you a a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. Excuse me. Uh, Just think about Albert Einstein. He's thinking about the theory of relativity, he uh, writes down on a piece of paper. Uh, what his uh, theory is that he has created over a period of months and years and he mails it to his colleague Niels Bohr because he wants to get his viewpoints and Bohr doesn't agree with him on all these things. And he puts it in the mail and a couple of weeks later Niels Bohr gets it because it's gone by snail mail and he thinks about it for a few weeks and sends him back an answer. Just that was what collaboration was like 50, 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I mean, uh, uh, imagine how that happens now, you and I are talking to each other, and I can come up with an idea. Boy, ideas are the big part of my life. Well, you're pretty good at ideas yourself. You don't agree with me. You uh, uh, put a twist into my idea that I didn't know about. What a thrill. You know, mm-hmm. we are magnifying knowledge. And, and to me, that's what collaboration is. It's, it's the most important part of my life dealing with other people, because every time I do that, uh, I walk away thinking about things in different ways, uh, and more creatively. Uh, and uh, I think that is the uh, essence of what the future of mankind is. And the one thing we cannot do is keep going like we are uh, with this divisive uh, politics with wars going on. And the solution to all of that is a new class of people that are dying to collaborate with other people who recognize that everybody is different from everybody else. And that that, uh, everybody living today is different from everyone that has ever lived before or will in the future. It sounds like a ridiculous comment. And yet we want to keep putting people in boxes. You go to college and they say, well, we're gonna have electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, uh, environmental engineers there is no product that is just one kind of engineering mm-hmm. it takes all these minds melded together to uh, understand uh, what the needs of, of society are and to make our new products and to make them uh, inexpensive reliable uh, and tailored to our specific needs mm-hmm. sorry to get on that so bucks, but-
0: Oh no, it's super. I I was just rewatching uh TED Talk, really popular. I always say his name wrong. He's a very famous author. I think it's Yo- Noel Harari. Yoal Noam Harari. He wrote uh the book Sapiens. Um, but that's one of the things that he talks about in that TED Talk is that what makes humans humans is our ability to collaborate flexibly and in large numbers. It's like the main thing that has distinguished us as a species is that if you put ten thousand apes in a in a room and try to get them to collaborate, it just wouldn't happen. Happen. <laughs> and like the fact that you and I are talking right now is, is the work of the hundreds of thousands of people that have been able to collaborate flexibly and in large numbers. So I love that you emphasize that as one of the most important components of innovation and collaboration. So I'm curious when you, because you're, you're a visionary, you are have big ideas that you're always testing. So when it comes to collaboration, do you have some ways of thinking about bringing forward a new innovation or a new idea to a thought partner and how you leverage collaboration with other people to strengthen your ideas or decide what to do moving forward?
1: Well, the old fashioned way, I think you already uh, described to me uh, is person to person. And so uh, at Motorola, I didn't have the luxury of having uh, cell phones. And, and certainly all my team didn't have there was, such a thing didn't exist. So the collaboration was a relatively small group of people. Uh, And if I counted everybody in our corporation, uh, maybe my Rolodex. You remember what a Rolodex is? (laughs) I do
0: know what it is. I've never used one.
1: (laughs) My Rolodex was uh, maybe 100, 200 people. Uh, Think of what's going on today with social media. Uh, I think social media are important. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, uh, all these ones that I don't even know. TikTok. Uh, I, I know what the names are, but I have no idea what what they are. But they are a precursor of a way of communicating between not tens of people or hundreds of people, but millions and billions of people. So if we could figure out, for example, in in uh, Twitter, we've got hashtags, and if we could identify a hashtag on a specific subject. And have those people collaborating with each other as a sub- subset of what's on Twitter. Just think of of uh, the the, uh, the creativity that that could imply. We haven't learned how to do those kinds of things yet, but I think we will. Uh, and and when that happens, we are going to solve some of the big problems of the world, which I think are things like uh, uh, poverty uh, and uh, uh, At war, those, those both of those are just unacceptable.
0: We're, yeah. you know
1: we produce enough goods in this in this world, we've got to, that nobody should ever go hungry, and yet we got billions uh, of people that, that uh, live in, a, in an environment of hunger. That's unacceptable. Warfare. Yeah. Well, you know what engineers do is is try to make the world more efficient. There is nothing more inefficient than war people destroying things and, and uh, destroying uh, other people. Uh, those uh, two things are unacceptable. Uh, and uh, I think that that is really what every engineer, uh, and I shouldn't restrict an engineer, every, everybody ought to be uh, having that aim, including podcasters. Mm. So I, yeah. I hope you put that on your list.
0: Well, I, I love that just the visualization of like leveraging, uh, you know, you, you gave the example of Twitter using hashtags to collaborate and create different groups of people. I think the quote that comes up on my show all the time is you can't read the label from inside the jar. I don't think that's so true is that we can't, see ourselves like we we need other people to collaborate with to as you said to share different thoughts and experiences based on di- their diversity and their experience to create these innovations and it's cool that that is stayed true your entire career and you're still a huge proponent of it uh, moving forward cuz i think the most important insights are the most fundamental like your maxims that you've documented here these are the building blocks of of creating the future so i love that and you you alluded to you know uh poverty and war is some of the the things that you are you know we can leverage technology to fix but another one is healthcare um and i know you you have a whole chapter in the book about this but you another one of your maxims is, is customization is the inexorable direction of products and services every human is unique different and di- different from every other human so we'd love for you to share some of your visions and some of your ideas on how we can leverage customization to to change healthcare in the future
1: well, the most important issue with, uh, with health care uh, is understanding what is causing a, a, uh, anything that departs from being fully healthful in a person's body. And, and the bottom line is that uh, every disease that uh, people have today it will, if it is not curable today, it will be curable sometime in the future. The most important thing about stopping disease is identifying it first, knowing when it starts. And the best example I could give is whether that doesn't exist yet, but just imagine if we could identify uh, a few cancer cells in your body by a device that's on your body all the time, and any time this number of cancer cells, we all have cancer cells, but anytime they start growing uh, at a faster rate than we accept, we identify them and zap them. Well, you can't do that in an annual examination. Mm-hmm. You have to do that every minute. And what device do you carry with you every minute? Uh, today, we call it a cell phone. It's kind of ridiculous. It's, hardly anybody uses a phone anymore uh, in the future it's going to be a collection of sensors and those sensors will be customized to your genes and if your genes say that you are have a tendency your family has a tendency uh, for uh, a congestive heart failure uh, that you will have a special sensor uh, in your body just to give you an alert if that happens and so uh, the cell phone of the future is not going to be just a phone It will have a phone. Maybe that photo we invented under your skin, uh, near your, uh, ear, uh, it'll have other sensors on your body that will be measuring, uh, other, other things, uh, and, uh, uh, the, what the purpose of the phone is to connect you to the rest of the world. And one of those connections is to a huge medical computer somewhere that is examining you personally every minute, maybe even faster than that. And the idea of a disease will disappear. Mm. There, there, people will die because they're looking at their cell phones when they cross the street, but they will not die from disease because every disease will be curable.
0: I, I I highlighted this from your book. We don't have a healthcare system. We have a sick care system, and that is just so cool to just think about that as a as a future. And it's funny because you say that we live in. Primitive times now, like, I mean, you talk about, you joke before primitive times about pulling out your yellow pages to, or your phone book to make that call. But like, I don't know, I think it's kind of weird to think about. We always talk about how advanced we are, but you know, from the the v- version of the future that's in Marty's brain, we're still very primitive at this point in, in time with our civilization, which is just cool to think about. Cause it's a, it's a fun way to have your, your brain stretch. And if I were to encourage you listening, I think the way I'm thinking about this too, customization is the inexorable inexorable direction of products and services. I think that applies in so many different ways as we're moving towards a world where everything we're we're wanting to be more and more customized for you. So like, as you build, as you create for the future, how can you begin to link um, customization with what you're doing? So I think that's so cool. Marty, there's a few other things I would love to jump in with you. One of the things that I, I highlighted was uh, about dreaming. So this is a quote from your book. Not everyone knows how to dream. I dream so often about the future that I frequently think I live there. <laughs> for me, the future is always so much more interesting and exciting than the past. So let's imagine for a second, we have one listener. Let's listening to this right now. And they're a dreamer. They live in the future. I think one of the key components that I saw from your book is being a successful visionary is talking and taking something that's in your head that some people don't necessarily understand and it doesn't exist and communicating it in a way that gets people to understand it gets them exciting. So I just curious to ask, like, what advice would you give our dreamer friend that's listening right now? What advice would you give dreamers to help increase the chances that their dreams become a reality?
1: Well, you understand that, uh, dreaming is great fun, uh, but, uh, you also need to, uh, have some substance behind your dreams. Uh, at some point, you do have to get educated, so that you know how to fulfill the dreams. And so, uh, the, uh, the most important thing in life, at least in my life, uh, is uh, is the concept of learning. Uh, there, I learn uh, continuously, uh, and uh, I get thrilled by getting a new idea. Uh, sometimes my ideas are not all that new, uh, but for me they're new, uh, and I can't tell you what to throw that is so you have a different viewpoint on how something works, an understanding of something, uh, and uh, when we get to the point where we get everybody to be in that kind of a mode, to be in a learning mode, to understand the importance of, of education, of knowing what's behind the dreams, uh, I think we're going to have a very different uh, world than we, uh, we have today.
0: It's. I'm curious. So I, I, I recently kind of started to document my what I call my superpower, and I, I believe that my number one superpower is curiosity. I'm curious. Like, do you have that as your number one superpower too, or how would you, how would you kind of connect your curiosity with what you've done in your career?
1: Well, my way of expressing the curiosity, it took me a long time to figure out that I could not achieve my objective of knowing everything. <laughs> You know, because I just have never understood the concept of being put in a box. Uh, and I told you before, you know, the idea of having an electrical engineer, when there is no product we've got that is only electrical, everything is electrical, mechanical, uh, and, and uh, all kinds of other disciplines. So these disciplines are, are artificial. We have to have a, a broad expanse of trying to understand how everything fits into everything else and unfortunately we have a, a a weird thing about everything in the universe one way or another is connected to everything else right? you you got that brandon
0: 100 percent.
1: all the way from the atomic level up to the galactic level there there is a connection there so things are so complicated we're never really going to understand all of that Uh, But uh, approaching that and getting more and more understanding of it uh, is an unending uh, uh, role for society. Uh, Mm -hmm. You're just wanting to know everything, uh, but focus again on your specific dreams. uh, I think that's the uh, formula for a successful life.
0: Mm -hmm. So beautiful. I think a a tangent related to this in my brain of, of dreaming and all this creation is, is innovation. And I know this is, you talk about in the book, how like some people romanticize, you know, innovation being super geniuses sitting in a, in a lab with all this magic stuff happening. But in reality, it's a lot messier than that. And one of the things you talk about the book that I thought was so important to share, because I think it's really important for people to realize is not jumping too far in advance with innovations. Essentially, like if you, if you go too far, people don't fully understand. So I'm I'm curious if you could share maybe some of your insights on like how to determine that line of like, what's, what's too far of a reach and what's realistic for people to grasp where we can bring it into reality.
1: Well, that's a very profound comment you make. And the best example I've got of it, uh, Believe it or not, it is a cell phone. Uh, because uh, as I mentioned before, I, everybody's different from everybody else. Uh, nobody wants the same cell phone as uh, somebody else has. And yet, uh, the nature of the uh, cell phone industry is they're trying to persuade us that everybody should have an iPhone, everybody should have an Android phone. Uh, and the way you customize is you have uh, two million apps. Oh, that's a great solution. All I have to do now is select among those two billion apps to uh, to create my own personal uh, cell phone. So it is kind of ridiculous. Uh, but uh, the answer to that is very simple. What you need is an artificial intelligence built into that cell phone that analyzes your behavior, that uh, knows what you want and need uh, and uh, uh, either finds an app or creates one for you that makes your life better, because that is what the objective of technology is. Technology is the application of science to create products and services that make people's lives better. That was one of the Barney's uh, uh, maxims, if you if you mm-hmm. didn't notice. <laughs> I did. So, I did. So so making people's lives better is really the issue, and and people just forget. We, we engineers tend to forget that. And the perfect example of that, I, know, I hope you'll forgive me for wandering. And, keep going. But the perfect example of that is all the fuss people are making about 5G. You've even heard of that? Uh, that? That is the most uh, misleading, it's almost fraudulent uh, uh, bit of advertising today is what 5G is. Because what they're focused in is on the Internet of Things. Uh, Someday the Internet is going to be controlling all everything in your life It's going to be adjusting uh, the temperature in your house, uh, controlling the uh, the electrical grid. So, uh, uh, but uh, the Internet of Things is still a distant dream. The Internet of People is just starting to be uh, evolved in the ways that you and I are just describing, healthcare, uh, education, safety, uh, and and of course, uh, collaboration. And hmm. and uh, the idea that uh, the, what the world needs now is uh, millimeter wave transmitters in the middle of New York so that we could serve an area of a couple hundred yards. And when there are rural areas, in Idaho, and Nevada, and places where I have no coverage at all. Something's wrong with that right. We got it. We ought to be work. Yes, I want to work on the future. But let's not forget the immediate problems we've got in the world today.
0: Yeah, and I mean it goes back to what you were saying before about collaboration that like if we need if, if we really want to create solutions that are going to impact humanity, like we need a more diverse range of people that are able to access these ideas. And by creating an infrastructure where more people can collaborate, we're missing out a whole chunk of people that aren't able to access um, or or provide their insights just by by that function. So that's that's. Incredible. Marty, I know we're we're coming up on time here and this has just been so much fun. I, I saw that we just had uh, Julie join us today and uh, I know she's been, she was, I was coordinating with her about some questions I could ask you. And one of the things that she suggested that I ask was uh, something that I actually saw in another YouTube video of you. I saw you working out like no, nobody's business. I saw you doing some, some mad crunches and, and, and we're really doing some incredible fitness stuff. So if I, if, if I saw correct, you how old are you today, Marty? You're
1: 93. Yeah. Going rapidly on 94.
0: Okay. Rapidly on 94. So any, any insights for anybody to live a long and healthy life as you have, and to stay mentally sharp, um, all these years where you're, you're still dreaming and innovating about the future, even today.
1: Yeah, well, I do have some very strong opinions in that regard. Uh, By the way, as you speak to me, my uh, muscles are aching all over because I've been working out really hard. uh, (laughs) And maybe I'm having a new knee put in next Monday. Mm -hmm. uh, So I want to be in really good shape for that, uh, 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 when that doctor approaches me. Uh, But uh, what I've discovered, uh, there are three elements to not only a long life, but a productive life, living a long time. is not an objective for anybody that has any meaning. You want to have a long and productive and interesting life. And so uh, if you don't take care of your body, uh, you won't have the structure to be able to to uh, move around and and, uh, absorb all of this wonderful knowledge that exists in the world today. Uh, the, The second thing uh, is the desire to learn. And that is a, a really scary thing in the context that uh, they've done studies that show that people that have become self satisfied, that don't think they need to know anymore, the thing they know it all. Uh, and after a few years, they lose the ability to learn. Could Brandon, <laughs> could you imagine anything more scary than that? No, but not able to learn. So appreciating the value of new ideas of getting excited by learning new things by understanding that uh, the learning experience starts in school but it only really begins when you get out into the real world and you're solving real world problems so that's the second thing first is is physical health second is uh, learning but the third one is you have to have a positive attitude Mm -hmm. if you don't believe in yourself, You know, believe in society, if you don't think things can get better, that you can make things better, then uh, life is not very worthwhile, is it? Mm-hmm. So uh, those, those are my secrets for longevity. There are a few other things involved, like having good genes, but we're not gonna go into that.
0: winning the gene lottery that's so beautiful so i think this is like a very related question but a question i love to ask all of my guests marty when i have a chance is what does happiness mean to you personally so um i just would love to hear your perspective on this as somebody that has made a massive massive impact in the world but is also still growing still excited to learn and doing all this stuff so what what does happiness mean for you today marty
1: Well, I hate to get really personal, but the biggest element of uh, happiness in my life is uh, uh, other people, and it's loving other people. My daughter visited me uh, 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 the last few days, and it was a thrill because I love her, Uh, I get to love my wife every day. It's a thrill for me to wake up in the morning and and have her uh, welcome me to the the, uh, live world. Uh, I have, uh, would you believe, uh, three great-grandchildren. Wow. And so the uh, scope of number of people that I can be in love with at the same time uh, keeps increasing. Mm. And I have to tell you that, uh, that that's a really important part of in my attitude in, in life. There are lots of ugly things going on in the world today. Uh, there has to be some optimism to counter that. Uh, we want to be realistic. Uh, But uh, as you uh, have figured out by now, uh, dreaming is not a bad thing either. And your dreams ought to be positive things about how the world and people can be better.
0: So beautiful. I have goosebumps. That's always a a good good response for a good question is when I get goosebumps. So I don't want to add anything on top of that because that was such a great way to end. I'm just going to really quickly have a conversation with our friend listening right now. And I just want to say, You could be listening to any other podcast right now. You could be doing anything else, but you clicked on this episode with the father of the cell phone, Marty Cooper. And man, you have been on for one heck of a journey. So grateful that you're here. And whether you're a a brand new friend or an old friend, Um, that is returning week after week, I just have one favor to ask. And I truly believe that podcasts can change people's lives. And this is absolutely one of them, this episode with Marty. like, So if you heard something today that inspired you, whether it was Marty's story of just assembling everyone inside of Motorola to make something impossible happen within three months to... To beat ATT and and not have a monopoly and 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 not have it so that we didn't have mobile our first experience of mobile phones was in our cars. <laughs> like there's so many things from the story or to his his insights on the future. There's so many things in here that can change someone's life if you share it with them. So it would meet it would make my day, it would also make Marty's day if you just take the time to share this episode with one friend, because this can absolutely make a difference and change someone's life. So I appreciate you so much for listening. Marty, I appreciate you so much for being here. And any any final things that you would like to say as we conclude for today?
1: Not at all, Brenda. It's been a spectacular hour. Uh, and you are a spectacular uh, uh, agitator, I would say. <laughs> but you're a great interviewer, and I really appreciated what you've done in the past hour. Good Thank luck. you so
0: much, Marty. Thank you. This has been amazing, and we'll talk to you soon, my friend.